Thanks for tuning back in to MBEX in the Know podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Padnos. I have two kids in our district, one in middle school and one at Miracosa, and I'm on the board of MBES. It's that time again. We're seeing signs pop up all over town. There's a big school board election coming. There's three seats open and six candidates to choose from. We have perception of what the school board does, but when I went to describe it to my kids, I realized that I don't know what they actually do outside of the meetings. Today, we sit down with Ellen Rosenberg and Bill Fornell, who have a combined 20 years experience on the NBUSD school board. They give us great insight as to what the job entails. We hope this helps you choose the candidate that best represents your family and who you think can do the best job for our community. I loved this interview. I not only got details and examples of what the school board does, I had the privilege of sitting down with two incredible people who have put in thousands of hours to make our schools and community better. We are known all over California for our schools, and after hearing the intelligence and dedication of Ellen and Bill, it's no accident that our schools perform at such a high level. If you missed the debates and you'd like to watch them, just go to Google and type in Easy Reader MBUSD Forum, and the YouTube link will come up for you. Our schools are a huge part of what makes this community so special. Please make sure to vote on November 8th. Hope you enjoy today's conversation. I'm sitting down today with Bill Fornell and Ellen Rosenberg, who both served on the Education Board, MBUSD. So thank you for your service there. And I'd love to just get started by having you introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about when you served, the kids you had in school, and really what what drove you to take on this big job? Bill Fornell. I grew up in, in Manhattan Beach and I served on the school board from 2008 to the end of 2020. We have four children who all went through NBOSG schools. Our, our youngest just graduated from Miracosta last year. So we're out of the district technique. What drove me to get involved was really my wife, who was a serial volunteer and involved in many things. So I guess you'd call it guilt you know, <laughs> that I had not stepped up yet at that point. And so uh, I served on a school board committee for about a year and a half looking at all the school facilities. And that got me really interested in both the operations of the district and kind of taking the next step. And after that, then I ran for school board in 2007 and was sworn in at the beginning of 2008. Great. And then, so you were there during the tough stuff of COVID. Yeah, I was there for the last, the first year of It's funny, the book ends. So I started in 2008, which was right at the beginning of a huge recession, which we immediately, within my first year, we're talking about cutting 50 people in order to balance our budget. And then I ended in my last year with a, a pandemic, you know, so yeah. in between was a lot of really good stuff. Okay. <laughs> great, great. <laughs> Thank you for that instruction. And Ellen Rosenberg, I uh, matriculated through public schools in Palos Verdes and moved to Manhattan Beach in 85. I have lived here ever since. We have three sons who graduated from Manhattan Beach Public Schools, the last one in 2018. And I got involved as, to use Bill's terminology, a serial volunteer going up through PTA and then the Education Foundation. And by 2009, I finished serving as the, the president for the Education Foundation. 
and some folks suggested I should consider school board, and I ran. And uh, it was an interesting time because we'd had the financial issues um, following that. And uh, I served from 2009 to 2018, and I had about six months off, (laughs) and then I was um, appointed by our then-supervisor, Janice Hahn, and served a two-year seat in the Los Angeles County Office of Education Board. Very different from Manhattan Beach, which is elected that is appointed. And, uh, but serving the entire county, which is huge and very diverse. And so really a contrast between the two boards, if you, but very broad. Yeah, that must have been fascinating. I didn't know that. I, yeah, I will not ask any questions on that, but I would, I bet another day. Th- yeah, I, I would love to listen for hours to your experience there. So sure. thank you both. And thanks for sitting down with us today. We thought it was important at MBEF to understand, since you both have all this great experience and we're all trying to make our choices for who we'd like to vote for, because it's an important election with three seats opening up. No one who knows better than you. What's important? What should we be looking for in our candidates. First question we'll start with is, who is the board representing? Sure. It's it's a list. (laughs) And I'll just to keep it simple, students, teachers, staff, the parents, but also past parents, not parents, parents of kids who live here but don't even attend our schools, and basically Manhattan Beach voters. And it's a tremendous challenge in, in, in any district to effectively communicate to parents and especially beyond the parent community. People are so engaged when they're in it and then pretty quickly disconnect from it. Or they're not in it if their kids go elsewhere or if they don't have kids or any scenario you can think of. We are not representing you know, religious organizations or political parties or even the union. That's interesting. How does the board represent the teachers versus the union representing the teachers? So does, do the teachers almost have two groups representing them? They, we represent the teachers as stakeholders. Some live here, many don't, and and they are employees. And then they're in the classroom with the kids. I mean, yeah. they are clearly one of the most important components. But the contractual relationship as a union is very different in negotiating terms of employment, et cetera. And so really the union is representing the working life of a, of a teacher and other staff. There's two unions, one for teachers and one for everyone else, support staff, et cetera. And while we are representing them as through curriculum decisions and you know, a myriad of other things that involve them as folks that are working with our kids every day. Great. That's a great distinction. Thank you. As we think about onboarding new board members, what are some of the most important things they need to know when they come into office? I I think it's important that they have a fundamental foundation in why we have public schools and that public schools are part of the community. They're part of what we are as citizens in uh, the United States. And so I think it's really important that they understand that they're caretakers of that process, of that overall goal of educating future citizens of the United States. And I think at a fundamental level, that's, that's where it begins. And but there is a whole lot of structure that comes along with that board role and as a school district <coughs> itself that they have to learn how to operate with both, whether it's the, the public meetings laws, the Brown Act, in terms of how as a board, you really don't have individual authority. You only have the ability to influence the district 
as a group during a public meeting. That's the only time as board members we can talk as a group, uh, literally about school district operation, that those agendas have to be published. They have to be public. They have, and that's the only things you can talk about during those meetings are the things that are on the agenda. So I think there's a lot of that aspect of the kind of parameters or I wouldn't call them constraints, but the process that's set up for how a school board operates. And so a lot of it then also comes down as ed code from the state that you have to operate within. The curriculum is primarily structured by the state of California. And so you really have to work within the, that structure and as a group, a collaborative group to make decisions to, to continue to move that district forward. And one of the ways that we really work through that is by setting the goals we want to achieve as a district together with the superintendent and then work through that process, of kind of that outline process to achieve those objectives. Great. Are there ever things handed down by the state that as a board you wish you didn't have to do, but you have to figure out to do them anyway because they're handed down by the state? Yeah, a good example of that is the funding formula that was created um, after the recession called local control funding formula. And that was legislated, was decided by the legislature and, and Governor Brown for how they were going to change the funding of public schools, which meant for a district like ours, that the funding allocation was going to be lower than districts where there's a greater economic need for students. And, and we'd love to get the same amount of money as other districts, but we did. That's just the way that it was legislated. So a big part of the, the, the board's objectives uh, from that point forward together with work, the organizations like the Ed Foundation, which helped supplement that, the booster clubs, MBX, et cetera, that we, that we collaborate with, was how to make the finances work for this district and continue to have the high-performing student outcomes that we want for our, our kids. Great. Thank you. That is a good example. And the curriculum, how much of the curriculum is determined at a state level versus a local level? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about building my summary on this. Like when we went through the big curriculum change, it was Common Core was the, that's, that's not the quote that was that's the right. beginning of it, but yeah. it, it, California created their own version of that. And it was rolled out in kind of subject matter segments. I think English language arts, yeah. mathematics, and then much later coming was social studies and, and science. And, but I think your question was, how do we, how much is determined yes. at a state yeah. level versus a local so level? In that example, they're saying these are, here's what it's going to look like in a general way. And, and here are the standards that must be met by the end of these different grade levels. But then there's a huge body of work that is done. And, and we have many, you know, multi-stakeholder committees that worked on this for years during these rollouts that, because it doesn't, there's curriculum and there's lesson plans and exams and everything that it takes that's happening in the classroom daily. And there's, so there's a lot of work when there's a curriculum change. And that, and these state groups that were working on actually implementing the curriculum that's handed down from the state worked on how that material would be developed. But you have to work within the parameters that are handed down by the state. And there you may, people may or may not recall, not every, so in the case of Common Core curriculum change, um, several years ago, was on board with it. Some states, most states did it, some didn't. And it's not as if every single district, every single teacher, et cetera, agreed with it. But when that's what the decision is, we have to figure out how to implement it best. Okay, great. And as a board member, the board members 
role in these, because because this seems like such a hugely important part yeah. of our students' lives. But and so I just want to understand as we're assessing board members, a board member's role are they in, involved in the curriculum uh, and or going it, on committees and or what? How my involvement was when we did Common Core. And I served on some of the committees for English language arts and uh, I think mathematics also. And it, you have to be collaborative. And because, yeah, there's lots of different opinions, but there's teachers on this, there's parents on this. I was a board member and others. And the, you have to be collaborative. There was be no benefit in me having a different opinion or even all the board having a different opinion and bringing that to those meetings because that would be counterproductive because that's not a you know something that we can change we have to work within what has come down from the state accepting and collaborative and productive i think would be the net of it okay great that's why i think it's such a good example is the topic that, you, that uh, ellen brought up because as we went through that process for any of those subjects at least personally as a board member i felt like i need to rely on the education professionals right i'm not an educator so you've got people in the room who've spent 30, 40 years uh, of their lives either teaching or administrating schools and have studied intensively. And the, that curriculum change, not just people think of it as, oh, it's a new textbook. And a lot of times that was the comment, you just need to buy a textbook. That's not what that change was. It was some of that content, but also it was how they actually, the mechanics of teaching math, for example, was a pretty significant change. And so the process was, You'd have the superintendent or the, the director of curriculum present the, a proposal and a plan and some outlines and some ideas and some source materials. And that was presented in a board meeting or, or in workshops or in committee sessions that uh, Ellen attended. And so it was really a, par- a process of understanding it, but then also putting in where you think the community that you're representing as a board member came down on how on that plan or that proposal. And so in a lot of cases, it was, as Alan said, very collaborative because you were finding that middle ground that you thought made the most sense. All while you're also balancing the other parameters and the constraints you have. There's budget constraints, for example, and things like that. You didn't have unlimited funds to go out and do everything that you might want to do when you implement a new curriculum change. Uh, There's time constraints. It takes time to do that. You can't just do that. It's not, like I said, it's not just a textbook and just give it to a teacher and say, okay, we're done. Here's the new math. And it was really more of a planning an executions cycle, and that as a board member, you're part of that planning process, along with a whole bunch of other stakeholders. It's a very long process. I've lost track since I left, but I think social studies hadn't even started. It was maybe just getting yeah. started when I was leaving in 2018. And this is something that was years in the making, and we knew the schedule of the rollout. And uh, the surprise people express when changes in social studies now, is this is not a major reaction. This yeah. has been in the pipeline for a very long time. And uh, it's just, it's a lot of work. Yeah. At least I did two to three years or four years for each one of those subjects. And they were overlapping. So English was on its way when math started. And then, so, but we put in writer's workshop, for example, which was part a key part of the English language arts, that was a pretty wholesale change of how English was taught. And so you have training of people, teachers who need to change their, their, their processes that they've been doing for many years. That takes a while. Yeah. So you can't just expect them to turn on a dime and, and do change their professional skills overnight. There was a lot of professional development and t- things that they needed to incorporate, which meant that it happened over time during their years in school. 
I think as a board member, in addition to you know, being involved in the workshops and the committees, and it's also you know, when state change starts happening, there's feedback <laughs> from <laughs> teachers and students and parents and others, but those are the main ones. And so you have to be able to explain and defend and explain and defend or explain and promote. And so there's that role as well as being more specific to board members than others in, in the, this process. Great. This is so interesting as a parent because we mostly know what's going on in our kids' classrooms. Like right. I know my daughter will come home and talk about writer's workshop, but I never took the time to step back and think about all the work that went into changing the curriculum to incorporate that. Yeah. So there's a lot. Yeah. Thank you. It's interesting to hear what you guys worked on. And thank you. <laughs> thank you. I know you made a lot of great changes. So how what do you work with the superintendent? What is the board's relationship with the superintendent? The structure is pretty simple. The, the superintendent is really the only district employee that reports to the board. The, the board has a review, hiring, review, changing, and then everyone else works for the superintendent. It reports directly or indirectly to the superintendent, which I think is a point that's sometimes not recognized by everybody. And the, it's like a board of directors and he or she is the CEO and they're running the company, a supportive board of directors. I think Bill touched on for the, the annual, the, the definition of you know, board directions and goals. So that has worked collaboratively with superintendent and staff to annually and then the long-term plans as well. And I do think that's the main lever that we have with the superintendent is being collaborative. I don't know. You want to? So, I mean, I think the other aspect of that is how the board sets the agenda for their board meetings associated to that. And it's working with the superintendent to plan the agendas for the next meetings and, and in terms of, okay, this is, we need to report back on this, for example. That will be the ask to the superintendent. We want to have that agendized because we want to get an update on what we talked about, whatever it was. And so the board president will work with the superintendent every month on setting that agenda. And so that's the other way that the board can exert their influence over the district and, and over the, the superintendent and then vis-a-vis -vis his uh, or her cabinet staff, the other administrators, including the principals at the schools. I just wanted to add some of the differentiation. You, you mentioned agenda planning and sort of the differentiation between you know, what happens in closed and what happens in open session. Because I also think that it's a little known fact that there, there's a very prescriptive list of uh, items that can, that can happen in closed session. You know, things related to negotiations with the, the two unions, any real property decisions, and uh, if they are human resources and issues, and uh, legal cases. And uh, I think that it's very limited. And, uh, and everything else has to happen in the public at a board meeting. And there's even under the Brown Act, there's even a granularity to that. Like you can't have any more of the two board members working on something together or being, you know, engaged in something. You can't, you can't go beyond that. And you can't do any kind of, I think it's called linear. Serial meetings. Serial meetings. That's it. Like, I'm going to talk to Bill and Bill's going to talk to Joe and Joe's going to talk to Mary, but we're all talking about the same thing and just setting off a, a chain of events. Send an email trail that's yeah. a single subject with what? Yeah. So there, I mean, it's very specific about managing the fact that the public knows what's happening in an open way and that there's no behind closed doors decision making informally or formally. Which was always interesting because there'd be topics that would come up in the community that 
the community had spoken about for a while. But until we get it on an agenda in a public meeting as five board members, we weren't able to discuss it. So people would be asking for responses. They'd be emailing the board president or individual board members or seeing them at the supermarket or something. And while they could give their own personal opinion and caveat it as, hey, here's my two cents on that, they could not represent the board in their response until the board actually had a response in an agendized, as an agendized topic. So there's always that kind of push and pull of being able to have a discussion around. I think when I was early on the board, Nancy Hurstman was board president at that time, and she made a great comment at as your public comments about, hey, this is the only time we five people get to actually talk publicly about these topics. So if we're at a, a cocktail party or something like you cannot be talking about school district business as a group of any more than three or any more than two. So I think that's something that people should be aware of that you're not going to get that kind of quick response all the time because nobody individual board member can represent board. Right. I, th I think I could summarize it, but it would be better hearing from you. Why is it so important, these rules? It almost seems like there's a sacredness. These rules that you all have to honor and follow. Sure. The Brown Act, I, I can't remember how long ago it was created. It's been quite some time. But I mean, it, like many things, it was created because there were abuses power, like on many levels in many places. And that closed door meetings, you know, decisions made outside the public and i'm not just not limited to school boards it's just councils and even like water boards and stuff like that the it was to fix what was what needed to be for people to have the open access to their own government and the folks that are representing them and that is why it's so important and it may seem a little stuffy at times and people watching a board meeting for the first time or even multiple times are like well, you know why are they why is it seems a little bit constrained and they're like, these are really obvious questions, but to Bill's comment earlier, it's because this is the only time we have to do it. I mean, in many ways, I mean, there's public comment, but people are just really watching a meeting happen yeah, because <laughs> they are allowed to and they should be able to. Yeah. Right. And, and as you bring up a good point with public comments, that's one of the common misunderstandings or friction points is someone will come in and make a public comment at board meeting at the beginning of the board meeting and they will, um, ask for a response and expect a response. Hey, you're my elected officials. Why aren't you responding to my comment? But the fact is that that topic that they brought up wasn't agendized, which it often isn't. We can't make a response. We can thank them for their comment. We can agendize it for a future meeting, which sometimes ha happened, but we couldn't respond right there, even as a board in a public meeting, because it wasn't formally agendized, which meant, and it needed to be, for, you know, one of the parts of the Brown Act that requires that. And so people can plan ahead. If I want to attend a meeting and listen to the topic that I'm interested in, it needs to be, what is it, 72 hours before mm -hmm. the agenda is published so I can look at that agenda and then I can decide to go to the meeting. If it just comes up and they all of a sudden talk about it and make a decision, I didn't have a chance to come in and, and, and pay attention to that or to you know, watch that. I think there's a lot of good reasons for it, but it does create a certain amount of friction sometimes where people want a response right away. We have friction with the community. Yeah. People that want to. That don't. They want to be around. Understand that constraint. Yeah. Right. So maybe they felt like they weren't listened to or something because yeah. they spoke without a response. I never heard back from you. you right. Know, kind of a thing. Because I can't respond individually to you as an individual board member until we actually make a decision on this topic or whatever the question was. Great. That's a great clarification. So as 
a board member, how much time are you spending, not only at meetings, what else is involved as a board member and how many hours a week are you working on it? Uh, it is really important to be prepared and, and to, to, in advance of clearly board meetings, which can be a big packet of information. And when we're at anything that's out in the public and responding to people's questions. So I think between his preparation for events of meetings, there's, you really just need to be out in the community, going to a lot of different things. And whether you're a full-time parent or a you know, full-time working and parent or whatever, it, it, it's a significant time drain. I mean, like many things, it could, drain's a wrong word. Time, thank you, Bill. The, but particularly when you're in the role of president, because of agenda planning and other things, I mean, I considered it like a 20 hour a week job. You know, and at times more than that, but at times less. I think on average, I thought it was 20 hours a week. That's a, yeah, that's an absolute part time job. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it varied month to month depending on the time of the year. But as Ellen said, there's an incredible amount of other activities outside of the boardroom that really helps you be prepared to be a board member. So, for example, each of the beat up the school sites as to be representatives to those PTAs and you can attend those PTAs, which yeah, we were there to represent the the board at the PTA meeting, but we were also there to listen to what was going on at that school site and understand what those parents were interested in and focused on or those board members of those respective PTAs. We have one, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize we have is we have a medical advisory board, which is about 25 doctors, primarily pediatric specialties, who advise the district on all kinds of medical related topics, which I would have never thought that there were medical related topics. But once you got on that committee, you realized there were hundreds of things that, that we dealt with over the years that every bond that we have has a bond oversight committee, which is parent, which is residents who volunteered to, to oversee that bond expenditure. And so we have a board rep for all of those. We are, we're part of the Southern California Regional Occupation Center, which is a career technical center in, in Torrance. We have a board rep that is a member of that board. So every one of those things has a certain amount of time committed, preparation, et cetera, in addition to the school district. And I, 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 work, I was a working parent at the time, retired now, but so I tended to focus on the activities I could do in the evening. So my fellow board rep, we were able to collaborate for the ones that were during the school day, during the, because there were plenty of those kinds of committees, like things that do with curriculum, because there were teachers involved and principals involved. So it was during their work. So it really divvies it up that way. And I would say that estimate's probably pretty reasonable. I know. Okay. You reminded me of so many things. I think I'm going to say 30. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can touch on all of Right? Yeah. Yeah. Shamer. You know. Exactly. Yeah. It's going to be everywhere, I think. Yeah. Wow. Thank you both to your service for, to our community. It, it, was really it is an incredible I mean, gift that you gave our community. Yeah. So thank you. It was, a, it was an honor. A question just about what the perception is publicly, especially now that you're, you've, you're out of their role and you hear about it in town. Are there any differences between the perception of what people, what the school board does do versus what they don't do? And I think you address a lot of this with your answer to the Brown Act, but is, does anything else jump out at you? I would bring up the, you know, the relationship with other entities, which I think the most important is city council, but certainly with our other significant support groups like the Education Foundation and the MBX and the PTSAs and PTAs. But the relationship with the city is special 
and and important because we have shared use of facilities. We have to discuss maintenance of that based on wear and tear that's city use. And facilities are sort of the the most obvious one that comes to mind, but there's safety. Mm -hmm. Our school resource officers and crossing guards and, and potential at times for fundings where we have mutual interests like that. But maintaining a collaborative relationship with city council is really important and different than our relationship with our support organizations like the Ed Foundation and the, and the, you know, the PTAs. But it is really important that be a healthy relationship with the city managers, so their staff, as well as with the electeds. Okay. Yeah, I think that the, school, the safety uh, topic is a good one. I always thought about it as when school's in session, it's what 20% of the city population or uh, most vulnerable 20% or more of the city population is, are in these buildings, right? And, and it's really important that we fit in, and that doesn't even count the parents and or the staff. And so I think it's really important that as pretty much, I think the largest employer in the city that we collaborate closely with the, with the city on, uh, on safety topics in particular. I never thought of that. I never thought of the criticalness of that, but absolutely. Anything else to consider in terms of you're a public figure when you're on the school board? Are you representing the school board? How did you see it when you were serving? Did you represent as Ellen on the school board? How did you manage that? What one thing, my view was I was always representing the school board, whether, you know, the good to the bad. need to... When you're out in the community, you're in that role. And I think any elected official in our community is, is in a similar position. Yeah, when you clearly everyone is entitled to their, their opinions, et cetera, but there's perception and reality. And even at times if I was stating something elsewhere in the community, you know, I'm saying this as Ellen Rosenberg, not as board president or member of the board. Yes, be mindful because there's it somehow it's still, it, gets the, the district can be painted with that brush so you have to really mind about managing yourself and also you know, how you represent the board outside of board roles agree yeah no i agree that it's always in the back of your mind right or at least it should be that you're you know that you are representing the district at the same time and representing the school board the district when you're out and about one of the things i always liked about the school board was it wasn't uh, political wasn't a partisan environment. I loved the fact that it was really, and I served with a whole lot of board members over the years, as well as all the various stakeholder groups. And I, I can't think of any national political conversations that we had. It was almost always about whatever it is we were dealing with. I, tricked it. I, I don't think I ever even knew people's party affiliation because it never came up. And that's what I wanted. I wasn't interested in that. And I think that's why I enjoyed the community interaction because oftentimes it was just that. It was just a neighbor coming up, talking to you about something that they, I remember my neighbor was always complaining about kids climbing on the roof at the school down the street. going, yeah, that's legit. So, yeah. I, you know, I'd email somebody at the school site saying, what can we do about that? Safety issue. Yes. Exactly. Safety. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great. And social media is really, I was going to say, added a wrinkle to that. I think it's added a tsunami wave to that because the, you, 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 no matter where you're represented, I mean, I refer to meetings and being out public and stuff a lot, but it's also anywhere your voice, virtual or otherwise, is occurring. Either. And it lives forever. 
<laughs> True that. Great. As a public school, I wanted to talk about the importance of representing all students. How did you manage that as a board? I think that's a, it is a good question. It came, it comes, came up a lot. It right? We would talk about how many AP classes do we allow a student to take, for example, or what's the requirements to, for an honors program that would be presented to us and for the gate program or things like that. And, and one of the things that I always thought about is we spent, we oftentimes in a community like ours, we oftentimes spend a lot of time talking about the most successful students. And it was always important to talk, to make sure that we talked about all of the students and what we were doing to help students who were struggling or just the, the kind of large group in the middle to do better. Right. And so I think we were always trying to make sure at least that we had an equitable discussion as well around that whole, that whole spectrum of whether it's student performance or student activities or involvement or how included they are, et cetera. Why I think that was such an important to topic. To I remember there are, there are 70 zip codes. Uh, I'm assuming that number still holds more or less that are represented mm -hmm. in this, in this district. 70? Uh, 70. Uh, and uh, there's, I think when one is in like K through five, it's a little harder to get your head around that because it does feel like, oh, these are all my neighbors. It's it and it's more homogeneous. But between our relationship with Rodaldo and with Hermosa, Hermosa and then other people who work really hard if there's space to 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 get have the kids come, rightfully so, then we have it's easy to be responsive or concerned about the vocal folks at meetings, particularly when there's a topic that people fired up about a lot of showing up. But you also have to be very mindful, and I always try to be mindful of the folks that weren't there, and because they're working, you know, maybe more than one job or, or staggered schedule, you name it, and you have to represent everybody. Yeah, that's interesting. I did not know. That's an incredible number, 70 zip codes represented in our school district. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you for making that effort. For example, we have permit students, we have uh, permit criteria, and one of the groups that we prioritize our employed city employees so they could live wherever same with district employees their children for which i think is great priority to have i think it's an attractive school district so i think it's a benefit for people that work in, in our community that they are able to have their kids attend here but and it helps i think just as ellen said broaden that kind of spectrum of of students and diversity in the avenue community great yeah i think so as well let's move from the topic of permits to enrollment, because enrollment is an issue that continues to come up in debates and conversation. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw coming? I didn't realize that you saw some of this decline in enrollment coming as early as 2015. Can you please speak to enrollment at MBUSD? Enrollment, I mean, when I went to school here, there was like 40% more kids in Manhattan Beach. And part of it was family sizes, right? And part of it was, you know, my parents had whatever, four kids in a 900 square foot house. And so did a lot of my friends. And th there's that, then that longer term decline. But then also we saw early on that there was declining enrollment statewide and likewise for our, our community over time. And COVID, I think, accelerated that a little bit, particularly at the kindergarten TK levels and even first grade where parents would say, Hey, I'm just going to keep my kid out of school for a couple of years rather than do this virtual school or have them go to Montessori 
And so I think, and that was a nationwide trend. So particularly those grades significantly declined for the, that period of time. I think it's something that we also, one of the reasons why I think permits are valuable in a particularly permit students are important to secondary school is it allows us to operate a, a high school with enough electives to provide the, the opportunity for students to take more electives, particularly as they get to their junior and senior year. And a lot of people don't see that, but when you think about if your school was half the size it is now, let's say Maricosta, in terms of enrollment, you couldn't offer that senior seminar and get 20 kids in that class. Maybe get eight. You couldn't offer a class, a class effectively that eight students. So uh, you wouldn't offer it. It would, it would drop off or that AP uh, calculus class where there's only so many kids that are interested in going that far with their math. It'd be difficult to offer it if there weren't enough students who were interested in getting it, taking it. So there's a sweet spot in enrollment. And I think that helps us with that. That's why we love having the Vermosa kids who choose to come to Maricosta, come to Maricosta because it's, it, it's, it helps us run a, a broader, more diverse curriculum for high school. Simpler than that. You're almost, you're talking about you know, having a robust curriculum, but having a freshman English class that's at a reasonable size or a math, an entry level or that's sort of technology, whatever, a math class, you know, even keeping our core, core classes at reasonable sizes so that kids can learn at an optimal level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting about the, all the AP classes that you were talking about. I never thought about that either. Of course, we need all these kids. To yeah, fill these classes. Yeah. Classes. Yes. And we're personally the beneficiary of a lot of those smaller, those more obscure classes. Mm-hmm. And it is what makes high school so special for my son. Yeah. You know, that's what yeah. gets him excited. Yeah. And the variety that kids find their place. Exactly. Other group of friends that they relate to. Mm-hmm. And with that, a happiness component that makes them better able and to learn. Right. It extends to the clubs that they can offer. It yep. extends to the extracurricular activities that they can have. Where that's why I always thought it was so great that Maricosta, I think there's something like out of, what is it, 2,600 kids or so, there's 1,200 of them are in either an after school sport or some sort of extracurricular program. So half the school district or half the, the campus is involved in at least four and more of those extracurriculars. Yeah. It's, it is what makes it yeah. a fun part of school is right. kids pay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really great. I didn't realize there was that decline that you foresaw coming. Is another reason we have the decline because there's more affluence now. So people have the choices to send their kids to private schools if their children learn better in a class with 15 people. Is that another reason? The Certainly the socioeconomic, demogra- socioeconomic demographics of Manhattan Beach have changed. Just having lived here since 1985. We've lived here since you know, well before that. And I, and I do see that. And it's not just I can choose to go to a school, an alternative school that's you know, within 20 miles. What COVID showed us is that they said, I'm going to choose to go to Orange County or I'm going to choose to go to Texas or I'm going to, you know, their option pool is broader. And think about it. You've already moved your student once. And so say things come back and uh, do you want to put your child through another school change? Things kind of stick. Not all of them, but some of them. And uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's true. Well, people have more options when uh, the means to be able to 
consider other options, right? The, the private schools that we have in just in our own local community, the Samar, Chadwick, Rolling Hills, those schools didn't exist. Well, that was rather clear. They, they, the only private schools that were parochial schools, you know, the Sean Montgomery and American Martyrs. I think people just have more options. And, you know, I don't think we should feel bad about that. And I, I would love to compete or continue to try to encourage more of those because I think there's a value for any family sending their kid to a public school, as well as the options that they have in private. But Great. Great. Well, I love our schools. So Likewise. thank you again for all that you've done. And on behalf of MBEF, thank you for sitting down with us today. So as voters, we have a better sense of what we need to consider when we're making our choices. So thank you. Thank you for asking. Thanks. Look forward to I loved sitting down with Ellen and Bill. I learned so much from them. And I loved hearing about different perspectives on how things in our district get done. We hope this episode gave you some insight and empowers you to make the best vote for you and your kids on November 8th. As always, thanks for your support of MBEF. Please join us in our annual appeal going on now. You can make your donation on our website, mbef.org. Thank you.